We've spent the, uh, the last few weeks going through this journey on the book of Ruth, this uh, fairly short book in the Old Testament, there you go, uh, that, that we're hoping will teach us something about what it means to be redeemed. And it made me think about when, when Brett Wellsaid spoke back in April, April the 16th, we were going through this series on you know, the, the next four things that Jesus said after he was risen from the dead. And there was this really interesting statement in this uh, Emmaus Road journey. So these two guys, Jesus has, has very recently come back from the dead. And these two guys are walking down this road to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them and is walking with them, but they don't know who he is. And they make this interesting statement, you know, that they're saying, Jesus says, what's going on? Where are you going? And, and they're just talking to him. And they basically say to him, you know, haven't you heard about all these things that have been going on? And he's like, well, tell me more. Uh, you know, they're obviously talking about him. They just don't know it's him. And they start telling him this story about this Jesus who died. And they say, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. So wasn't, I mean, knowing what we know today, he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, right? To redeem all of us. But what were they actually talking about? You know, to me, this is like super ironic that they would say this. They're saying this to Jesus, to the one that was there to redeem Israel and to redeem everybody outside Israel as well. So this Greek word to redeem, to release by paying a ransom, you know, there's, there's a couple different ways you can think about this. There's a physical redemption, there's a spiritual redemption. So there's two different ways that they could have meant this. And I think when you read in the New Testament, these guys talking, you know, wasn't he the one that was going to redeem Israel? I don't think they were talking about spiritual redemption. I don't think they understood that concept yet. In fact, when Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room right after he was raised from the dead, you know, he was back from the dead, kind of a shocking thing, kind of a big deal. He had told them it was going to happen, but now they actually saw him. And one of the disciples said to him, uh, so is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what these guys are saying. They're, they still aren't getting what Jesus was here to do. They, they're thinking he's here to redeem us from the Roman Empire. He's here to kick the Romans out and restore the kingdom to Israel so that we can be an independent country again. So they were looking for a political redemption. But that wasn't what Jesus came here to do. He was here for a spiritual redemption, to redeem people's hearts, to save them not from the Romans today, but to save them for eternity. And so they just didn't quite understand what redemption meant. In Galatians 3... It's talking about the why here. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So he redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law being this thing that, you know, the Israelites were given at Sinai. The law being something then that we understood, you know, here's a set of rules. Here's a bunch of regulations that you're supposed to live by. But it's very clear in the New Testament those laws were there to reveal to us that we couldn't keep the law. Those, those laws were there to teach us that it was impossible for us to live up to the standard that God set. And so we needed someone to redeem us 
from the law. And why did he do it? He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And I think this is almost kind of like the the book of Ruth in a nutshell, isn't it? This idea that Jesus came and he died and the new thing that he was doing was saying, you know, I had intended in the Old Testament Israel to be this light on a hill so that the nations would see who God really was. And after Jesus comes back and is raised, there's a new covenant. There's a new idea. And not only is this new idea that the Holy Spirit will indwell us, as we talked about in our previous series, but this idea that it wasn't just for the Jews anymore. That was a a very radical thing. Uh, Peter in the New Testament really struggled with that idea that this is now for the Gentiles too, So this concept that we've talked about the last several weeks, that Ruth was a foreigner, Ruth was from Moab, Ruth wasn't supposed to be part of this deal, and yet God grafted her in by her statement of faith. That whole system of us versus them was then broken down, and so this redemption that Jesus brought was one of saying everybody, everybody in the world, the Jews and the Gentiles, that, that pretty much is everybody, right? Everybody is now available to have a relationship with God, and then it just relies on our faith. So we talked last week towards the end, who was the story about? And today is the, the fourth week, the final week of this, and so we get to get to the end of the book, and we get to figure out what was the point of all this, you know, what are we supposed to learn from this, and I think who this story is about is, is super interesting. The story started, if you'll remember, in week one with, with Naomi and her husband Elimelech. They go to the land of Moab, a place they weren't supposed to go. Her boys marry Moabite women that that the law said they were not supposed to marry. And then all the men died. The the sons died. The husband died. And Ruth and Naomi come back to the land. And so Naomi is there at the beginning of the story. Ruth gets added in. And then we have Boaz who comes on the scene. And Ruth meets Boaz. And it seems like maybe... Boaz will be the one to redeem Ruth, which according to the law was maybe his responsibility to do because he was this this kinsman redeemer, this person that the law said, if there are widows who are destitute, it's your job to bring them into the family to take care of them. So as we progress through today, you know, look at, look at who's saying what. What is Boaz saying? What is Ruth saying? What is Naomi saying? And let's see if we can figure out who this story is really about. So if you still have your eight and a half by 11, if anyone still has that, we're starting kind of at the bottom of the page. Uh, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And he said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. So where we left the story last week, Naomi had had this really bizarre plan to hopefully get Ruth and Boaz together so that they would be married in order that they would have a way, a long-term solution to their problem of how are we going to live. You know, gleaning around the edge of the field worked great during harvest season, but what happens when harvest season's over? So at the end of this story, and at the end of chapter 3, we see that Boaz says, well, I'll, I'll redeem you, but there is a closer relative. There's a closer redeemer, 
And according to the law, it's actually his responsibility to do this. And if he doesn't do it, then it would fall to me, and then I will do it. So that's where we find ourselves. We start this off, though, with him going to the gate. So Naomi, right there at the end of that last section, said, Whatever, whatever's going to happen, Boaz is going to do this quickly. Well, the first thing he does is go up to the gate and sit down. Now, what does that mean? This is the city gate of Lachish, which is about a 50-minute sort of drive west of Jerusalem, southwest of Jerusalem. And they've excavated this city. And it's a, a city from Bronze Age, Israel, you know, very similar in style to the way cities would have been designed at that time. And if you look at this, you've got kind of up at the very top this outer courtyard. People would have come in. They would have come into this outer courtyard. And then you see these little chambers. There are six chambers here. And what's going on with this design is when you had people come into your city that that were foreigners or from another city, you had a walled city. You didn't really want people just randomly coming into your city. You didn't want to let people come in and do their business anywhere inside the city. So if they had grain to sell, if they had purchases to make, people would come to the gate and outsiders would come inside the gate and they would only get into this first area inside the gate. And there would be these stalls where business would be conducted and people could go sit down in these rooms and conduct business. The other thing that was important about the city gate is that that's where the elders would sit. So the, the oldest, the wisest, the, the rulers of the city would come out and they would sit in the gate and they would witness these transactions because you know there wasn't really the concept of writing contracts and things like this at this time. There was no, you know, there was no cryptocurrency. There was no anything that would keep track of all these things for you. So somebody and multiple people of the elders would sit in the gate, and they would make judgments uh, about what was right and wrong, and they would also witness all these business transactions that were happening. And so when it says he went to the gate, that was what he was doing. So the first reader reading that would have said, oh, I know what that means. He's going to do something legal. He's going he's gonna to go and go through some kind of a legal transaction here. And that is what's happened. So, and, oh, and here's our word, behold, again. We talked about this last week. Behold, the close relative of who he spoke was passing by. So again, just like the beholds that we've seen so far, it's like, wow, God is in this story. God is making things happen because it just so happens that Boaz went there to talk to the elders about this situation. And it just so happens that the very guy he wanted to talk to shows up at the city gate. So I think that's why the behold is there. So we see that close relative term, the close relative, the redeemer, our word redeemer has reappeared in the story again. So This is the person who was the closest in terms of kinship to Ruth and Naomi, whose responsibility it was to redeem them, to bring them back into the family and take care of them. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So what's going on here? So we talked about the elders of the city. So he goes to have this transaction. Remember last week we talked about Naomi's plan, which I think was a little bit sketchy, a little bit questionable. Her plan was to happen in secret. Go down there, go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Let's see what happens. Let's see if this solves our problem. But Boaz instead takes this to the city gate in full daylight in front of the elders of the city and says, this is what's going on and we're going to do this the right way. So the elders are there and he says, buy it. Buy this before those who are sitting here. Let's make this a witness transaction. Let's let everybody know that we're doing what's right before God and before these people in front of everybody. And his first answer is, I will redeem it. So what he's saying is, Naomi has this piece of land, and do you want to buy this piece of land from Naomi? And his first answer is, yeah, I'll take the land. Oh, but (laughs) here's the surprise. With this piece of land, you also get to have a wife with it. And not only is she a wife, but she is from Moab, which is kind of, as we've learned in our story, frowned upon in the nation of Israel. So you're also going to acquire Ruth the Moabitess in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And we've talked about that in previous weeks, that the idea was, you know, you would have children with this woman, and then those children would be named after the dead father, and so the name of that dead father would go on. Well, what, what complicates this, I think it's interesting that he changes his mind after he finds out that Ruth is involved. And why is he doing that? Uh, it, it could be, you know, I, I think in, in realistic terms, it could be that he was married and his wife would not be impressed with this situation. Um, you know, I don't think things have changed that much over the years. But I do think there's probably some kind of a monetary issue going on here. So here's the way this worked when redemption happened. If this guy, if this closest relative was to buy this land, now he would have Ruth as his wife. He would have a child with Ruth. That child would have the name of, the ch- of, of Ruth's dead husband, right? And so that family would go on. And when this guy died the land that, that he had just spent a bunch of money to acquire when he acquired Ruth, that land would go back to Ruth and, and this child. And so that was the idea of redemption, is that the land went with the person whose name was on it. So what he was saying, and you know, this would jeopardize my inheritance, he's really saying the price of this is too high. If I can buy this, and it will go to my kids, I'll find a way to make it happen. But if I have to spend half of the money I have in order to buy this, only for it to be inherited by somebody else's family, then the price is just too high for me to pay, and I'm not willing to do it. Remembering that this was what he was supposed to do, but remembering also that this is the, book of, this is the time of Judges. During the time of Judges, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so... 
I think, an instance here of this guy just saying, you know, everybody's kind of doing whatever they want these days, and I know I'm supposed to do this, but in front of the elders, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to pass on this. The price is simply too high to, to make this redemption. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and exchange of land. To confirm any matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, you are witnesses today that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilon and Malon. Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court, court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So we talked week one about this idea of editorial comments, something the, the narrator of the story puts in there like, this is something that you need to understand because if you don't understand this, what's coming in the story isn't going to make any sense. This idea of removing a sandal, um, there was a concept when you purchased land in the ancient world, in, in ancient Israel, that the idea was you walked around the edge of the land. And that was the way you took possession of it. And so in, in Genesis 13 here, when God told Abraham, I'm giving you this land go, and, and what did he say? Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. So this was almost like a legal contract. God would saying, go walk around the edges of this land, and when you have done that, you now own this land. This is land I'm giving to you. So then the idea of removing the sandal was that I, I would have used this sandal to walk the edges of the land. I'm now giving you the sandal so now you can walk the edges of the land. And so this was the closest, the, the closest thing we would understand to this today is this is a contract. It's a legal contract. I give you the sandal. I'm giving it in the presence of all these witnesses of the elders of the city so that nobody can come back and say, oh, wait a minute, this is my land. I've got your sandal and everybody saw me give it to you. And so this, this is a legal contract now. So that's what's going on here. So again, I think this is really straightforward. You know, you are witnesses today. You are witnesses today. The statement starts and ends with that. Again, Boaz, with the integrity that this guy had, was doing this in the right way, doing it in the daylight, doing it in front of everybody so everybody understood this is the final result and nobody can argue about it later. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Epaphratha and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they said, Yeah, we're witnesses. We saw it. It's a, it's a done deal. This is a legal contract. So at this point, you could say the land is purchased, but Ruth at this point has been redeemed. This is a legal thing. It's a legal contract. It's a done deal. And then they, make, they pronounce this blessing on them, which I think is really interesting. You know, they talk about 
make, make it like Rachel and Leah, you know, the wives of Jacob who became Israel, and, and the house of Israel was built out of the sons that, that they had. So a really good blessing. But then there's this, and this I think is really interesting. And this tells me, when they, they make this statement about Judah and Tamar, maybe the people in town understood what was going on here. The, the people in town that are, that are talking here clearly understood that, that Ruth was from Moab, that you weren't supposed to marry a woman from Moab. They understood, as we talked about last week, that Boaz's mother was Rahab, you know, the Canaanite prostitute, that, you know, all these things shouldn't have happened, and yet through all these things, somehow God was blessing these people anyway. And so I think it's super interesting that they bring up this idea, make, make your house like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So in Genesis 38, we see this story, and it's, sorry, but it's another PG-13. It's another one of those stories they don't teach you in Sunday school. So Judah had a son, and his son married a woman, and his son died. And so Judah had another son, and according to what they were supposed to do, he gave that son to the woman, Tamar, and then that son died. And so his responsibility was to give his third son to Tamar, but he was like, well, my first two sons have died. I'm kind of nervous about this. I don't think I'm willing to do this. And he told Tamar, just, just live here in the house, live as a widow. I'm not going to give you another son because he was afraid of the situation. And then what happens is, is maybe the PG-13 part where Tamar decides that she's going to pretend to be a prostitute. So she puts a, a veil over her face. She goes to a different town. She knows that Judah is going to another harvest-style party there. And Judah goes to get the services of a prostitute. And Tamar becomes pregnant from her father-in-law. Very weird thing. And when they get back to the community, she's pregnant. And Judah says, obviously, this is an out-of-wedlock thing. And, and she needs to be put to death by what the law says. But Judah had given the prostitute his staff as kind of a payment and she says, oh, well, the father is the owner of the staff. And he's like, oh, I get what's going on now. And so he never touched her again. But the child that was born between the two of them was Perez. And out of this super weird situation came a child that, according to this here, it tells us God blessed Perez and his family. Isn't that weird? Why would God bless that? God blessed that because God wanted to bless that, because God blesses the, the ones he wants to bless. You know, it's about grace, isn't it? It's not about our performance. You know, we've talked about this many times. We, we have this performance-obsessed American culture where everything can be boiled down to numbers. These things in the Bible, these stories cannot be boiled down to numbers. God is not going to be boiled down to a number, and we don't get to define how God responds in a situation. God responds the way he wants to, and generally the way he wants to respond is with grace and with blessing things that we as human beings in the real world think, this is messed up, 
And God said, yeah, that's messed up, and watch, I'm going to bless it. I'm going to fix it, I'm going to redeem it, I'm going to make it work. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife and went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is the point in the story where you say, What? Wait a minute, what just happened here? So Boaz took Ruth, they have a child, you know, they get married, they have a child, and the people said to Ruth, you're blessed? No, they didn't say, they didn't say to Ruth, you're blessed. They said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who's not left you without a redeemer today. So Naomi was the one redeemed through this situation, not necessarily Ruth, I find that to be kind of interesting. You know, I think you get to this point. It feels like we've been waiting this whole story. Naomi has, has gone through this story. You know, she started in chapter one. She's mad at God. You know, her life has gone down the tubes. Things are not what she wanted them to be. She's come back to the land of Israel. She's destitute. Everyone's dead. She has this foreign woman with her. You know, Naomi would have thought every morning when she got up in the morning, I see Ruth here. Ruth is the daughter-in-law that I shouldn't have had because I went to the land I shouldn't have gone to. And yet Ruth made this great statement of faith, and I see the faith in Ruth. But because we did this thing, because we sinned, because we went where we weren't supposed to go, God is never going to bless us. And I think this story very much flies in the face of that idea. I think that's what we think. I mean, I'm a human being. That's what I think, too. We have this performance-obsessed culture that we live in where we think, if I do X, I'm going to get Y. And it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. In this situation, you know, the blessing in this was for Naomi, You know, Ruth is obviously blessed in this situation, but the story begins with Naomi. It it then ends with Naomi. So this child, uh, it says a son has been born to Naomi. Well, obviously not directly to Naomi, but a son was born that then would be raised up on the land that, you know, his father, his, his real father had owned and he would take his name, and he would preserve that family line in Israel. And the idea of him being a servant in the Hebrew was the idea that he was there to serve Naomi. He was there to help Naomi. You know, it says right there in the passage, a sustainer of your old age. You know, somebody that can take care of you so that you will not be living hand to mouth the rest of your life. So that was why they named him Obed. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron, Ram, to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, and to Salmon, Boaz, and Boaz, Obed. 
to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David, who would be the greatest king that, that ever lived in Israel. So what is the story about? What is the point of this story? What's the thing that we have to take away from this? Okay, look at this line. And we don't see this entire line until we get to the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew being the, the good Jew that he was, understood all the ties between the Old Testament and, and what was going on with Jesus. And he lays out this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And look, look at the players in this. Judah and Tamar, messed up situation, right? And then you get down further in history. There's a bunch of names in between there. But Salmon and Rahab, a messed up situation. Boaz and Ruth, a messed up situation. We don't know what Obed, Obed's wife's name was. Then you go through Jesse David and Bathsheba, a messed up situation that everybody knows about. And then they have the son Solomon, who it said God loved and God blessed, right? And then Solomon, who does he marry? Among others, Nama, the Ammonite princess, who he wasn't supposed to marry, and has a son, Rechoboam. And ultimately, through this messed up family tree, we have the Messiah. Jesus comes through this mess. Isn't that just grace? The whole thing is grace. I mean, from beginning to end, that is the point of this story. If you read the story of David and Bathsheba, that's the point of that story as well. You know, all the bad things that happened, all the mistakes that were made, and you get to the end, and Solomon's born, and it says, and he loved Solomon. God loved Solomon, and God was going to bless him, and he would be the next king. I think that's the big, big takeaway from this story is God will redeem those he wants to redeem. He'll redeem those he wants to redeem, not because of their performance, but to some extent because they threw themselves on God, you know, because they were willing to display faith in God, not because they said the right words, but just because they, they were trying to find God. So who's the story about? Boaz, I I certainly aspire to be Boaz. I mean, I look at Boaz, everything Boaz does in the story is right. Everything he does is honorable. You know, I I look at him in the story and I think, boy, that's, that's who I would like to be. That's who I want to be. Ruth, you know, being the foreigner, being the outcast, you know, to some extent, if, if you're a Gentile in this room, if you're not a Jew and you're a Gentile, we're all foreigners. We're all the outcast that got grafted into the promise of Abraham just because of what Jesus was willing to do. And you think about this closest redeemer, you think about him you know, not being willing to pay the price. I can't afford to buy this land. I can't afford for it to be given away when I die to someone else. But Jesus paid a price that we can't really even fathom. You know, and we we think the price he paid was his death on the cross. And I think it's so much more than that. You know, he, he was God. I mean, God living in a place that was appropriate for God, living in this perfection. And he gave all that up to come and be like us. No, because he wanted to redeem us. He wanted us back. And then I think about Naomi, and 
Naomi, through this whole story, she's, she's been mad. I think she's made mistakes. And yet God was faithful to her, wasn't he? And he redeemed her in the end. So where do we land with this then? I think there's really, there, there's two sides of this. There's, there's Ruth and Naomi. They're the primary characters in our story. Ruth, early on in the story, you know, made this great statement of faith. Your God will be my God. And, and Naomi, I'm going to go back with you, even if it means the whole rest of my life, I'm living hand to mouth and, and I'm, we're going to live in desperation, but your God is my God and I'm going with you. And because of that, you know, you can definitely see Ruth redeemed spiritually in the story. In the end, with Boaz, she's also redeemed physically. So Boaz redeemed Ruth, and we are all Ruth. If we're Gentiles in this room, we have all been grafted in. We've all been given that blessing of being a part of of the kingdom because of that. But I think Ruth redeemed Naomi in this story. And I think this story fundamentally really is about Naomi and her journey And where it feels like, when you get to the end of the story, I feel satisfied with the story of Ruth. Ruth makes a statement of faith. Ruth meets the guy. Ruth gets married. She has the child. Everything has worked out, and it just feels like the perfect bell curve, and everything feels good. The story of Naomi feels very real world to me. She starts starts out the story doing what's wrong. She's angry at God. And did you notice what Naomi said in chapter 4? This. She didn't say anything. So this great statement of faith, I've been waiting for this whole book from Naomi. Bless God because he did this. Thank God. It, It wasn't even there. You never got it. She never made it. And I think what you take from that is Naomi's story isn't over. Her story isn't over. You know, maybe she ends the book and maybe despite all these good things that have happened and despite the fact that she sees the long-term solution, you know, she's been redeemed physically. She was redeemed because of her relationship with Ruth. You know, the very thing that she thought God would not bless is the thing that God did bless. And God was now going to take care of Naomi physically, but where is Naomi spiritually? We don't know. We don't know. It just ends... And it leaves that part of the story hanging. And I think the, the takeaway for us in that, and maybe what the writer intended here, is that that story goes on. We don't know where Naomi ended. Um, you know, there are people in the room today that are in that same boat. You know, maybe you're Ruth, maybe you're Naomi. Maybe you identify with one or the other. Um, Naomi's story is not over, and your story is also not over. And I get the sense coming out of this book that you know, God is just waiting. It's, it's as if it's a, he's waiting for you just to crack the door open, just to crack it open, just to make any kind of statement of faith, just a slight amount of belief, and he will knock the door down, and he will come and find you, and he will redeem you too. So I think that is the message of Ruth. Father, we thank you for this story that you saw fit to put into your book. And for these people that you knew, we just thank you for showing us this. 
that you cared about these people, that you care about the people in this room as well, that you redeemed them and that you want to redeem us as well. And I pray that everybody in this room would be there, Lord, that we would open the door and just step out in faith, even when we don't know where that's going to take us. But we would step out in faith and we would go down this, this journey with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.